Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Missouri's midterm elections are less than two weeks away, and Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft wants voters to know about a new election law that requires people to present a government-issued photo ID at the polls. Ashcroft joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about what Missourians should know on November 8th and beyond. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in Jefferson City, she is St. Louis Public Radio State House and Politics reporter. Sarah Kellogg. And joining me in studio in St. Louis, he is Missouri's Secretary of State. Jay Ashcroft. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for joining us today. We have a lot to talk to. The election is less than two weeks away as we're recording this on October 26th. Um, we really want to talk about the new election law. There's a lot in it, but we want to first start off, start off with the government-issued photo ID requirement. When somebody comes to the polls on November 8th, what do they need to bring with them? Well, the first thing I should say is that if you're registered and go to your polling place on Election Day, you will be able to vote regardless of whether or not you have a government-issued photo ID. If you don't have that government-issued photo ID, you'll have to vote a ballot, then you'll have to fill out a provisional envelope. That ballot will be put in that provisional ballot envelope, and once the polls close, they'll use the information you provided on the outside of that envelope to uh, verify your identity. If you bring your government-issued photo ID, you can just do a normal ballot right away. Now, on the provisional ballot part, let's just say like you put a squiggle on that doesn't match your signature that's on file. Couldn't it be argued that your ballot won't count? Uh, yeah, if you don't, if you, if you falsify your signature or intentionally make your signature unlike your signature, of course. Yeah. Um, but that would be you disqualifying your own. No, ballot. I get it. But my point is like, the, the signature has to, I was at a, I was actually at a St. Louis County election commissioner's press conference yesterday, and they really emphasized that you have to have a signature on the provisional ballot that matches what you have on file or it may not count. What I will say is that, uh, especially with the usage of the poll pads, when we're, when they're looking at signatures, they have several signatures to look at so they can see if your signature has changed over time. Um, I believe in part of the depositions for the lawsuit over the photo ID law uh, and the lawsuit got thrown out, uh, they said that uh, less than 1% of the ballots were not counted uh, in in St. Louis. And I believe it was less than a percentage of 1%. So the vast, vast majority of those do get counted. 
And I've also heard from election officials that if there are a lot of people that come to the polls without a government-issued photo ID, there could be more provisional ballots than usual. And it could mean that if there is a, a close election, it may not be decided on November 8th. Can you can you talk about that? Well, first off, if there's a close election, it won't be decided on November 8th because we have military overseas individuals that are allowed to send in their ballots as long as we receive them. They have to be postmarked accordingly, and then we can receive them by Friday at noon after the election. So if we have an exceedingly close election, uh, we're never going to know for sure who won that on election night because we have to go through the certification process at the local election authority level, and we have to certify what they did to do a a double or triple check, if you will. And then, of course, there are ballots that are still coming in for our men and women overseas in the military. With the photo ID portion, I know that, you know, the judge recently threw out one of the or dismissed the lawsuit. But, you know, one, the uh, plaintiffs of it can refile and they state their intention to get it to the Supreme Court. So why do you think this will withstand judicial scrutiny? Uh, because the people of the state in 2016 amended the Constitution specifically to allow for the requirement that a voter prevent, present a government-issued photo ID for the purposes of proving citizenship, identity, or residency. And, and what do you make of the idea that the photo ID law is a solution in search of a problem? Um, I think later on in this podcast, we're going to talk about whether or not people trust elections and whether they should. And I think uh, right there, this is one way to help people uh, have credibility in the results. Let's say that the Supreme Court does kind of do what it's done before and struck down the photo ID portion. What happens to the rest of the election bill? Um, if the photo ID bill, or sorry, if the photo ID portion is is ripped out of the, the the law or struck down, then the two weeks of no excuse absentee voting is is taken out, but the rest of the law will stand. Um, but if the Supreme Court were to claim something was unconstitutional, that the people of the state, with about sixty three percent majority, put specifically into the Constitution, I think we have far larger problems, and we might see some justices removed from the court. Now, that's not the only part of this new election law. And we're going to get to the no excuse uh, in-person absentee in a second. What are some other parts of of this bill that you want to highlight? Uh, Well, uh, we uh, the secretary of state has the authority to uh, check voter rolls by election authorities to make sure that they're cleaning those voter rolls. I have the authority to pull in uh, election equipment vendors to require them to publicly disassemble their equipment for people that are concerned about what might be in that equipment or what isn't in that equipment. Uh, We saw a change to how we uh, do presidential elections in the state. We instead, historically, for like the last six times, we've had both a caucus and a presidential preference primary. We had the primary where people voted, and then we had the caucuses where the real decisions were made. Uh, The law has been changed to get rid of the fake primary and go to the caucus like we've been doing. I think we're going to see some legislators that might say, let's bring back the primary. I've talked to them. I'm okay with that. But if we're going to bring it back the primary, I want the votes to determine the delegates. Okay. Yeah. That's actually pretty important for 2024. So let's just say that I want to go vote for president like I've done in 2020 or 2016 in the primary. If this law stays the same, there's no more like me going to the polls and casting a, a primary vote anymore, right? There's no going to the, the presidential preference primary, but in 2016 and in 2020, your vote didn't really count. Okay. Why? Because it's a non-binding presidential preference primary. Uh, several election cycles back, 
Missouri moved up their presidential primary, so it was earlier than the national party said it should be. I believe it was the Republicans. could have been the Democrats. Don't mean to – they both have these arguments. And they said if, if you pick your delegates based on that primary election that early, we're going to cut the number of delegates you have in half because they kind of control which state gets to go first. So Missouri said, well, we're going to continue to have the primary election, but it isn't going to actually matter. We're going to have a caucus where we actually make the decisions. And I just think it's wrong as kind of the chief election authority for the state to have an election where the people's votes can be ignored. As Jason said, we're kind of getting really close to the election and early uh, absentee voting has actually started that no excuse absentee voting. So how do you think the no excuse in-person absentee period has been going so far? You know, so far there haven't been any concerns. We haven't had reports of any sort of problems. It's early. People um, aren't used to doing it. So I would expect that as we continue to have that option in the state of Missouri, probably a greater percentage of people uh, will take uh, will use it. Uh, unfortunately, what we've seen in other states is that as you move to early voting, as you move to no excuse absentee, you don't actually increase the percentage of people that participate. You just shift when they vote as opposed to getting more people involved. And uh, St. Louis County officials say absentee balloting is down compared to 2018. Is that what you're hearing in other jurisdictions? We are. Um, I think that, uh, you know, 2020, we saw a massive increase in that because of COVID, a lot of things due to COVID. And then I think we saw a lot of concerns with absentee ballots and people not voting in person. We saw concerns with the postal service getting ballots back in time. Uh, so I think it's I think it's smart for people to vote in person if they can. What I always like to say is if you go to the polling place and vote in person, get your ballot, fill it out, uh, 100% of those ballots are counted. If you mail it in, historically about 2 to 2.25% of them for some reason are not counted. So do you think that this no excuse portion, you know, is incentivizing people to vote early? Or as you said, is it, do you think it's more of a shift of the people who would have already voted or just voting at a different time? The data is not there yet. But if we look at what has happened in other states, it's just shifted when people vote. If you look in 20, uh, 2020, we had a massive amount of people vote early, so we were uh, about halfway through the day on Election Day. We were calling for much larger turnout than we ended up having because we were banking on there being that late-night surge of people. And then when the night got over, we realized all those people had already voted early. <laughs> uh, if you don't have a photo ID, can you participate in no-excuse absentee voting? If you don't have your ID, you need to go vote in person on Election Day. Or if you meet the requirements, you can vote absentee by mail, but you need an excuse. Now, let's talk about the ballot initiatives. Um, why did the adult use marijuana initiative make it to the ballot? Because I know that there was um, some, I don't know if controversy is the right word, but some people were clearly not happy about it because they sued over it. Well, I'm not happy that it made the ballot. Um, but unfortunately, they collected enough signatures. Um, there was some uncertainty about it because they were a lot closer than people thought they would be. And because uh, there were some temporary workers that were hired by our local election authorities that instead of hitting invalid signature when they came to an invalid signature they were hitting invalid page and they were marking the entire page is invalid um, the people that submitted that petition were sunshining us daily so they were getting the information about as quickly as we were they were also double checking them they saw that problem they brought it to our attention I have to certify and say this is what it is or this is what it isn't so I said we need to double check if they're telling us we got these wrong Unfortunately, it turned out we did get it wrong and they got enough signatures. Uh, why did you think you ended up prevailing in court? 
because what we did was correct. Um, we did not say that a bad signature was good, but we also didn't say that a, a good signature was bad. Um, the, there is a constitutional right for individuals to put something on the ballot if they collect the right number of signatures. They had done that, and they should not lose their right because someone that's working a temporary job for extra money made, some, made a mistake. Now, you just alluded to it. You're not a fan of Amendment 3. Can you explain why? Yeah, I just think it leads to more people smoking dope, dope and, and being stoned, and I don't think that really lends to productivity and to being a, a better city and, and state and country for people to grow up in. Aren't, aren't people that want to do that just crossing the border in Illinois and bringing it back into Missouri anyways? And if so, shouldn't we make money off of that? Um, if there are going to be more doped out people stoned not knowing what they're doing, I think they fit right in in Illinois with that government. Come on. Are you serious? Have you seen that government? Uh, I I mean, you cannot. I mean, I'm an Illinoisian. You can't you can't besmirch the name of Illinoisians but like that. You're more an outstate Illinoisian, I'm, right? I'm just kidding, Sarah. And you're a you fan? No, I'm a White Sox fan. Can, continue, Sarah. You're hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the same vein, on the legalization, you know, with the idea of yeah, should the state be making money off of it? I know it seems that like if it's not going to be this initiative petition, maybe it'll be. You know, a state law, I mean, do you think it's just kind of kicking the can down the road or is this kind of think of a real threat? You know, in your opinion, would it be a threat that this is like the biggest chance that the state has? Oh, I don't think this is the biggest chance the state has. I think the federal government is is finally seeing some movement. And I think that's where it ought to be. Um, I think it's I mean, look, I think it's ridiculous that we, we say that marijuana is worse than heroin. It's worse than opium. It's worse than all these things that actually have a therapeutic effect. And we've said that there's no such therapeutic effect. We ought to be researching marijuana. There are plenty of people that I believe that say, you know, they have cancer or something else and marijuana actually works for them. Um, but, you know, if, if this is passed and then the federal government decriminalizes marijuana, marijuana will be more legal in other states than it is in Missouri because this will enshrine restrictions that will be stupid if the federal government decriminalizes it. Do you have any other opinions on the other proposals that will be on the ballot? You know, I, I do. Uh, my rule of thumb, though, is uh, if I'm not sure of a ballot issue, I vote no. And if I'm not sure of a judge, I vote no, because I think in the history of the court plan, we've only had about four judges that got removed. And I figured if nothing else, if we can put the fear of God in them, hopefully it'll help and encourage them to do a better job. I know there's a constitutional con- <laughs> okay. I know there's a constitutional conven- convention ballot ballot initiative. I, I do. You, do you think that I, I'm sure that there's a lot of Republicans who are like the Constitution is too large and unwieldy. Let's have a constitutional convention to undo a lot of that. But I, I think that's getting some pushback, too. Do you have an, an opinion on that? Yeah. Every 20 years, the people of the state have to vote on whether or not they want a constitutional convention. I, I'm not in favor of it. I just look back at how the Senate operated earlier this year. Uh, now, granted, the people, uh, the delegates to the convention would be different, but I, I just don't have any faith that they would make things better. Uh, I will admit, though, our Constitution is way too long. In 2018, people voted on how long you had to be a member of the Elks Lodge to turn out bingo cards. Yes, that is true. We'll be right back with Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft on Politically Speaking. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. We are talking about elections, but now we're going to talk about libraries. And for full disclosure, this is one of the rare instances where my spouse's vocation intersects with my job. 
my wife works for a local university as a subject librarian and, and may or may not have strong opinions about this. Um, I do not because I saw the press release, but I don't really know a lot about the rule that you're proposing. What exactly are you proposing? Uh, the real idea here is that we want more transparency, we want accountability, and we want to make sure that parents are in control. So what we're requiring is... Uh, First, any money that we're giving to public libraries, we do not want that to go to, to materials that just appeal to the prurient interest of children. Um, and those are, I, I would say, the, the sexually erotic type material that I don't want to talk about on the radio, um, which I think the taxpayers of the state don't want their money going to anyway. Uh, then the second thing that we, we would require is they have to certify that they have a written public process for determining age the age-appropriate level of the material they have. Uh, we're not telling them what the age-appropriate level of, of material is that they have. They have to have that process. We think it should meet what their local standards are, what their community wants. And then they have to have a, a, a written public policy for parents to challenge uh, the uh, age-appropriateness that they've de determined. And then we just say, look, if you've decided that something isn't age-appropriate for minors, you can't display it where you have the little kids. You can't have that book that may be appropriate for teenagers, definitely could be appropriate for adults, but isn't it appropriate for 8-year-olds right next to the computer my 4-year-old uses to play games in a library. So I go to uh, St. Louis Public Library on, on Hampton, mm -hmm. and there are specific floors that are separated for little kids and then for adults. That's reasonable. So if a, that library purchased material that they put on the second floor for adults, would they be barred from getting any uh, funds from your office? As long as it was per their written public policy, they wouldn't be. Now, uh, obviously, there are certain books that appeal just to the prurient interest of minors that they shouldn't be using state taxpayer money for, but they can use other funds for that. What is the prurient interest of minors? Like, how would you define that? I know you said you didn't want to talk about that on the radio, but since you're proposing it's, this rule, I think you need to explain, like, what that means. Anybody can get a, can get a dictionary, as I'm sure your librarian wife can tell you. Um, but what I would mention is uh, just to keep it family friendly, uh, it's that sexually or stuff that appeals to the sexually erotic, I don't know, feelings of a child. Okay. And it even seems wrong to say that a child has those feelings. Okay. I'm old, sorry. Okay, <laughs> I, I have seen a book like in the kids section, which is maybe like a illustrated book explaining that some families are, are same-sex couples. Would that count under that definition? Once again, the library provides the policy and d designates how things are age-appropriate and how they're meeting that policy. So it would depend on the library. What we are trying to do is allow the libraries to have local control, but there has to be transparency and visibility into that process, and there has to be accountability so parents can make their voices heard. Look, if, if you're a public library, you're using taxpayer dollars, you need to be responsible and do what the taxpayers want with their money. Could be what falls under that book, you know, what books fall under that. Could that be pretty subjective? You know, what is there going to be a set of criteria that's going to be used it, to determine whether material fits that definition? Because, it I mean, is going to vary based on libraries because we are – what we're doing, I mean, I guess if you want, I could write a policy that every library has to follow, but then it would be one policy. And what we have tried to do is we've tried to say uh, Rolling Hills Library, 
you can have a different policy than Missouri River Regional, or as I like to call it, Thomas Jefferson. But you're going to have to write that policy. It's going to have to be publicly accessible to the people that pay your taxes. And you're going to have to be accountable for that policy. And if if people don't like it, they're going to come to you and tell you why it ought to be changed. But we're not giving a one-size-fits-all policy, but we are saying you need to be public about it, you need to be open about it, you need to be transparent about it, and parents need to be able to say, wait a minute, these are the levels of books that I want my child to get underneath your policy. The question I have on that is like, okay, then a library sets their policy. They say this is what it, this is what we're doing and why we're doing it. Well, let's just say that, you know, there's a parent that doesn't like that policy. So then would that, would, would one parent, I mean, it probably would be more than one, but would one parent's opinion on this on this policy change how much money the library would be getting? The way the rule is written, they're just required to have the policy. They're required to be public about it. Uh, they're required to have that accountability as to how they came about that policy. But then we want the local uh, community, that county or that region, we want them to make that decision. I, I really, I, I find it kind of funny that librarians seem to be complaining that I didn't write the policy for them. What would you say to, about, to the librarians who say this is an affront to free speech and free expression? How in the world does free speech and free expression mean that someone else can decide what sort of torrid or pornographic materials they can give my child? Explain that to me. I, I don't even understand how you get there. I'm not stopping the library from having something in their library, but they should be reasonable with how they place that and who they release that to. That's, I mean... I. Jason, I, I would never do this, but you don't want me handing your little kids pornography, and you ought to beat the crap out of me if I were to do it. Yeah, I understand that, but my I think the re, the, the the basis behind this questioning is pornography can be subjective, and what is pornography to you may not be pornography for somebody else. And instead of giving one size fits all. Mm -hmm. I'm letting the librarians who I thought were supposed to be educated on how to do this and how to represent their community, I'm letting them write the policy. Mm -hmm. But instead of giving it for them, they get flexibility, but they have to be accountable for what they say. Now, I think that this has become a big issue about books in libraries in conservative books, media. Books, presentations, Wait, all sorts of stuff, yeah. Do you think that this is a real issue or do you think it's being ginned up by things like Fox News? Um, Rasmussen did a poll, I think, uh, the end of September. Republicans, Democrats, high income, low income, I think it was around 75 percent of people had concerns about this. Um, I think uh, with regard to public school for elementary school, 80 some odd percent of respondents believe that none of this material should be in the public school. So what's the process for this rule to actually be implemented? Because this is just a proposal and it's possible that the, the verbiage could be changed if you know, maybe librarians uh, suggest something. Uh, I, I, wanna, I want you to kind of describe that the, process. The, that's a really good question because there's a 30-day public comment period that starts November 15th. November 15th is when the rule will officially be published, uh, but we've started talking about it. Uh, hopefully that gives people more time to think about it and uh, if they like it, if they don't like it. What I would ask is if you think it's a great rule, don't just say that. If you think it's a terrible rule, don't just say that. Say, if you think it's a good rule, why do you think it's a good rule? If you think it's a bad rule, 
why do you think it's a bad rule? If you think it could be improved, don't say it could be better. Say it would be better if you did this, because that's constructive criticism that we can take into account. We'll look at it. And, you know, if somebody comes up with a great idea, I'm glad to claim it as my own and, and make changes. And we're going to post the actual proposal on stlpr.org so people can read the entire rule and provide constructive feedback to the secretary's they can office. Fi- they can provide whatever feedback they want. But if it's constructive, that actually helps us make it better. I want to talk about confidence in the election, which you alluded to in the beginning of the show. And, you know, I think that since 2020 and since former President Trump continues to litigate the results of that election. There are a lot of Republicans out there who do not I think have... we have a lady running for governor of Alabama that's relitigating what her run for governor Georgia. four years ago. Sure, think- Georgia. Georgia. Um, I think that Hillary, Hillary Clinton came out earlier this week or at the end of last week and said that if someone else wins, uh, they shouldn't ex- uh, accept the results. We have people, unfortunately, across the political spectrum uh, that are sowing distrust in our elections. But would you say that Former President Trump is one of those people. I would say that President Trump, Hillary Clinton, Stacey Abrams, all people like that are 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 throwing discord with regard to our elections. So, what do you think that election officials like yourself can do to provide confidence that the 2022 election on November 8th is going to be done? Fairly and freely. I think we can talk about the process. I think we can encourage people that have questions to be poll workers, to be poll watchers so that they can come back and see how it operates. But, you know, the number one thing we can do is is something that we can't do until Election Day uh, or at least till the actual during the actual election. And that's to run it correctly. You know, we wouldn't have all the concerns we have about our elections if Pennsylvania hadn't ignored the Constitution with regard to absentee ballots. We wouldn't have all the concerns we have if Georgia and Brad Raffensperger hadn't acted the way he did to abrogate signature requirements through a judicial decree. We wouldn't have the same concerns if we didn't have places uh, like Wisconsin that was using uh ballot drop boxes that have now been ruled illegal and unconstitutional. But your office, purchase, your, your, your office purchased drop boxes in 2020 and decided not to use it because you didn't want people dropping in mail, mail in ballot well, boxes. Right. Uh, but, ballots. but the law in Missouri allowed for drop boxes. Okay. The law in Wisconsin did not. Um, and The main thing we need to do is do our job and do it well. Mm -hmm. We need competence in government. We need we need elected officials that understand that the best politics is good governance. And um, we have had too many people that did not follow the law, that did not do things the way they were supposed to under the Constitution. And of course, that raises doubts about how things were done. But didn't all those things you mentioned in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Georgia get put through the legal process and they didn't end up changing the election outcome in any, any we don't of those know. states? In, never, in, in none of those election, con, in, in, there weren't any of those election contests where they actually went through the, the whole meat of it and said, would that have changed the outcome or not? The only one that came close was Pennsylvania, where the Supreme Court said, yeah, the, the Constitution says you're not allowed to do that, but we're not going to worry about it. But what, let's just say they had thrown that all those ballots out, wouldn't you have been disenfranchising like literally hundreds of thousands, if not several million people that took advantage of that? So what's the one solution? The solution is to follow the law. The solution is to run the elections according to law and according to the Constitution. The problem was created when Pennsylvania didn't do that, when Georgia didn't do that, when Wisconsin didn't do that. In Missouri, whether or not I like the law or not, I'm not a big fan of of no excuse, essentially early voting. 
um, but we're going to follow the law. That's how we make sure people can have credibility in the election. So there have been increased threats on election workers. I think there's there was an article recently about uh, election officials getting records requests that are tying up time and manpower. What, what do you think about that and why do you think that's happening? Uh, first of all, luckily, Missouri is is a much better state to be a secretary of state in than a lot of other states. Uh, you know, when we have Missourians that get passionate frequently end with God bless you as they walk away. Um, so we just haven't seen the same scale of problems that we've seen in other states. I love that. Um, you know, yeah, Missourians have the right to request records. We have a law. It's called the Sunshine Law. Mm-hmm. And frankly, at times it can be burdensome, but they're who we work for. It's the people. Um, and if we have elected officials that are complaining because the people of the state are questioning them or are using their legal rights to request information, that's not appropriate. Um, I work for six million people. The people of this state are supposed to be in charge. And if we have public documents that are requested by the people of the state, I have a duty to make them available to them. I'm happy to do that. And um, I, I, I serve them. I took an oath to serve them. And I'm very thankful and blessed that I get to. Uh, County officials recorded a video recently talking about how people should have confidence in this election. Is that in response to Trump's election denialism or is that kind of just to dissuade concerns people have about elections? I think that's just to encourage people to participate. Um, I can do everything correctly. Election authorities can do everything correctly. But if people don't show up, it's a bad election. And why should Missourians feel confident in the results of the election? Um, I think they should just look at how we run our elections. They should look at the the use of bipartisan teams. They should look at the fact that we will have the results early on election night, probably by 11 o'clock at night. Uh, They should look at the fact that the clerks will do a 5% audit after election night, that they'll go through a certification process, that we will go through a certification process. Uh, They should look at the fact that we're going to be requiring a government-issued photo ID or uh, a provisional ballot. We are making steps to make sure that the people of the state can have confidence. The last line of of protection in our elections is our poll workers, and I want to encourage the people of the state to participate and taste and see that our elections are good and true. Do you have any like predictions about what turnout is going to be, or is it a little too early to figure it's that out? It's going to be depressingly low. Oh. Um, I don't know an actual number right now. Um, it's going to be less than 20. I'm concerned that it's going to be less than 18. Um, I just don't see the enthusiasm for any of our statewide races that we have right now. Um, unfortunately, I, I just don't see it. Hopefully, I'm wrong. Is it possibly because, like in 2018... <laughs> there was a nationally targeted Senate race. And this time around, neither the national parties are really pouring any money or organization into that. I think that's definitely part of it. Um, I I think both sides are looking at the Senate race and saying that's going to be double digits, whether it makes a 20 percentage point difference. I'm not sure. Probably does. Whether it's a John Ashcroft in 1988 difference or a John Ashcroft in 1984 difference. Well, well, the 84, 84 was pretty. 84 was or John Ashcroft in 2020. You know, I forgot your name is also John Ashcroft. On that note, uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for coming in and talking about these issues. We really appreciate it. Uh, Politically speaking, is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri St. Louis. You can find all of our stories at stlpr.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Sarah, how can people follow you on Twitter? At Sarah K. Kellogg, two L's, two G's. And how can people find out more about the Secretary of State's office on any social media platform? Twitter at Missouri SOS, voting govotemissouri.com or at 
or sorry, sos.mo.gov. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking.